Listen, today, Ezekiel 45, turn there. We're looking to wrap up our study in Ezekiel. And I know some of you might be looking ahead to the last chapter thinking, what? There's no way. Yes, we are going to be wrapping up the book of Ezekiel today. And that means that we have, as Randy said, we've gone through the whole of the Bible here at Riverside Calvary Chapel. And uh, I'm excited about that. And that's not just been on me, that we've had others um, involved, Pastor Randy, of course, Pastor Rob, Pete. Uh, we've had other people that have, have um, you know, just taught um, God's word for us. But uh, what a blessing to say that we've gone through the whole of the Bible. How exciting that is, right? You know what's even more exciting? Going through it again. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Because we start, and oh, this is super cool too. This hasn't been planned, everybody. You're going to think, oh, it's all set up. You called. Um, so we started our Sunday morning services back in January of 2002. So it's been 17 years that we've gone through God's Word, 17 years. But we started as a church uh, meeting in, um, in the Hawkins home. And Gary and Arlene Hawkins, and Gary is here. Gary, can you wave your hand? This is Gary here. I just want to honor Gary because he's been such a blessing to me, to the church here, in just allowing us to start as a church meeting in their living room. Uh, we took a lot of items when we were in need grocery-wise, too, that they don't know about, but uh, a real help to us. Because we, we were living, my family, we're living in their basement suite. And then he opened up his home for us to meet at uh, in his living room. So that became our Sunday morning gathering um, in the beginning of 2002. And we started in the book of John, Gospel of John. That was the first book we went through. And, and that's where we're gonna uh, go again in the new year. We're gonna go back to the book of John and go through it and just continue on teaching God's word. So Gary, it's awesome to have you here today with your daughter, Sean. That's awesome. And welcome and good to have you guys here with us today. And thank you for just being open to allowing us to start a, a church you know, in your home. And uh, what a blessing, yeah. Amen. But today, Ezekiel. Okay, uh, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, but listen, this is exciting stuff here that we're in right now because what we're seeing is we're seeing things to come in a future day. All right? Sometimes we think, you know, eternity, oh man, eternity is just going to be boring. I hear people sometimes, believers, say, Oh man, I'm not ready for that. I just want to continue on living in this world, in this life, and experiencing all these things here. And almost like they're not looking forward to eternity. I'm thinking, what? And I don't know if they understand what eternity is going to be like because it's not going to be hanging out on the clouds, playing a harp, you know, growing your wings or anything like that. That's not what eternity is going to be like. Eternity is going to be exciting. It's going to be filled with different activity. In fact, so what we've been seeing here from chapter 36 of Ezekiel on is we've been seeing this plan that God has in store for a future time. Started with the regathering of Israel, chapters 36 and 37. And then we look at this invasion that's coming against Israel during the tribulation when we will be in heaven as a church. Uh, that's Ezekiel 38, 39. And then from chapter 40 on, we've been looking at the temple and the millennial, um, the millennial reign of Christ, 
where there's gonna be a temple again there on earth, this thousand year reign of Christ, where there's gonna be, just like I say, activity happening. We're gonna be there in our glorified bodies. There'll be people that will have put their faith in Christ through the tribulation that'll come into the millennial in a physical body. And they're gonna be engaged in different things. We're gonna see sacrifices, the temple worship. We're gonna see feasts being celebrated. We're gonna see today in Ezekiel how people are gonna be fishing in the millennium. How many people like fishing? Right, yeah, there you go. Pete, you're gonna have activity fishing in the morning. I'll, I will be off golfing and I'll be hearing about how big your fish caught and I'll be sharing all the hole-in-ones that I've been making there during that time. But there's gonna be, it's gonna be exciting. It's gonna be awesome. And so those are some of the things that we're gonna be looking at here today. So chapter 45 of Ezekiel, I hope you're there. We're continuing on looking at the measurements of the temple grounds, the different divisions of land, etc. Listen, we're not gonna be reading through every, every verse, okay? Because there's a lot of stuff that I'm just gonna kind of summarize for you because uh, I'm gonna put you into a dead sleep if I just sit there and, and read through every verse, all right? Not that it's not important because every, every word of God's writing is important. And God is laying out that he's got specific things in mind and plans and allocation of property, measurements of the temple, that, that God's a God of order, that God is gonna be establishing all these things. And I'm excited about that, but we're just, we're just not gonna read through every verse here today so that we can just kind of get through this. But look at chapter 45, verse one, as we look at kind of this, this millennial allotment of land and what God has in mind for a specific piece of real estate there in and around Jerusalem. So verse one, moreover, when you divide the land by lot into inheritance, you shall set apart a district for the Lord. A holy section of the land, its length shall be 25,000 cubits and the width 10,000. It shall be holy throughout its territory all around. Of this, there shall be a, a square plot for the sanctuary 500 by 500 rods with 50 cubits around it for an open space. So this is the district you shall measure, 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide, and it shall be the sanctuary, the most holy place. It shall be a holy section of the land belonging to the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, who come near to minister to the Lord. It shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. Verse five, an area 25,000 cubits long and 10,000 wide shall belong to the Levites, the ministers of the temple. They shall have 20 chambers as a possession. You shall appoint as the property of the city an area, 5,000 cubits wide, 25,000 cubits long, adjacent to the district of the holy section. It shall belong to the whole house of Israel. And all of you are going, wow, amazing. You're like, I have no idea what you're even talking about here. I understand, that's fine. I'm gonna to try to make some, some sense of this for you, but it's interesting that just as the Israelites, you know, when they came into the promised land of Canaan, um, that, that God had them kind of uh, apportion different uh, areas of land as an inheritance for them, Josh, uh, Joshua chapter 13. And so here we are now, like coming into the millennial reign of Christ when things are gonna be changing again. Uh, here we see it in a sense like Israel again, getting this kind of allotment, this inheritance of the land once more. But they're to reserve a section of this land that's to be, it says, a district for the Lord a specific space that's gonna be this special parcel of land that the Lord's gonna use. It's a section of land that's 
25,000 cubits. Now, again, we're looking at not a normal cubit, which is 18 inches, but this kind of long cubit or royal cubit, 21 inches. And so what we're looking at is a strip of, of space, 25,000 cubits um, long, which is, which is 8.3 miles by 10,000 wide, which is 3.3 miles long. So it's a, it's a significant section. And there's two strips of those, okay? Let me put up a little map. I hope you can kind of see that clearly there. But basically in that kind of green inside box there, um, there's the top part that's for the Levites, those that are serving in and around the temple. The, then the, the part below it, which is the priest portion, those are serving directly in the, in the sanctuary. And then you see the dark green box, that's the sanctuary that's there, okay? So God's giving measurements for all of that. So it's 8.3 miles, 25,000 cubits, 10,000 cubits, 3.3, plus another one, so 6.6. And then we see that there's the bottom part, a portion where the city is gonna be, all right? And we'll get to that at the end here. But then on either side of that, there's this land that's given over kind of for the city workers to grow crops, to uh, have food supply, that sort of a thing. Here's another kind of breakdown. And again, showing you where this is sitting in Israel there, um, in and around Jerusalem. And the breakdown of this district for the Lord, the Levites, the priests, the temple in the middle, and then the, the city. And then we read about here how the prince is going to have the section of land on either side. Uh, the prince, many believe, again, they, when you hear that, the prince in the millennium, everybody, I think, automatically goes, oh, it's Jesus, the Messiah. He's the, the prince of peace. But this is not who we're speaking about here, okay? This is a leader. Um, and many believe it's David who's going to be resurrected. Ezekiel talks about David reigning there, kind of being a, a, a co-regent there. It could be other you know, human or, or, you know, leaders there, whether they're mayors of different cities and stuff, but they're the princes and they're gonna have a portion of land outside. It says in verse seven, the prince shall have a section on one side and the other of the holy district in the city's property and bordering on the holy district in the city's property, extending westward on the west side and eastward on the east side, the length shall be side by side with one of the tribal portions from the west border to the east border. The land shall be his possession in Israel. And my princes shall no more oppress my people, but they shall get the rest of the land to the house of Israel according to their tribes. Thus says the Lord God, enough, O princes of Israel, remove violence and plundering, execute justice and righteousness, and stop dispossessing my people, says the Lord God. So here you see this land being given to the princes, and here's what they're called to do, to reign and rule, to rule with righteousness and justice. No longer shall you be oppressing people that you should be doing things outside of God's command. You shouldn't be oppressing or having this abuse of power. Now that wasn't always the case. That's why God has to mention that, that in the millennium, it's gonna be a different, a different thing going on here because there's gonna be this, again, enforced righteousness. Jesus is gonna be present and he's gonna bring into this millennium this righteous reign and rule that we haven't experienced before. It's going to show again this, this perfect, you know, place that, that God has desired for us. Things are going to be made new, transformed, and it's going to be a glorious time. But here's the interesting thing, guys, is that um, so many people say, well, I am the way I am because I'm a product of my environment. 
I grew up in a home where I didn't have Christian parents. They didn't model things well for me. And so I naturally lean towards this or I do that because of what I've experienced or because of my workplace or because of that person. And so we tend to put a lot of blame upon our environment around us as to why we are who we are and and the wickedness that prevails. But here's the thing. God's going to bring in a perfect, righteous time, season, place, and a rule of Jesus where it's going to be perfect. There'll be no crime. There'll be no issues. Everything is going to be held to a righteous standard as Jesus is there. But here's the amazing thing is even after, at the end of the millennium, see, also what's happening, I forgot to mention, is that Satan is going to be bound during this thousand year reign. Satan's bound. He's not on the prowl. He's not on the hunt. He's not bringing the deception and, and temptation. So he's bound. But at the end of this thousand year reign, he's going to be released. And you might wonder, why would you let him go if he's already bound? Well, because it's going to prove something. Because Satan's going to be released and he's going to lead a number of people that have been living in that millennium, he's gonna lead them in a rebellion against God. There's gonna be people that are gonna turn against God, turn against this perfect, righteous, peaceful condition. And what that's gonna show is that the issue is not your environment. The issue is what's going on in your heart. That, that, that our hearts can be deceitfully wicked, sinful. And there's gonna be people, even in a perfect setting, that are gonna reject that, rebel against it, and turn on the Lord. And it's going to show that the issue is not your environment. The issue is having a repentant heart that is transformed through Jesus Christ. And so this is what's going to be going on in the millennium. So the Lord is saying, listen, you need to, as princes, as leaders, you need to rule righteously. There's not going to be anything done deceitfully or dishonestly any longer. Look at verse 10. You shall have honest scales, an honest ephah, and an honest bath. Just underline, that's all of you. You need to have an honest bath once in a while, okay? Just a nice, clean, good, solid bath, okay? Uh, the ephah and the bath, these are measurements. I'm kidding, they're, they're measurements here. Bath is a liquid measurement. The ephah and the bath shall be of the same measure so that the bath contains one-tenth of a homer. And the ephah, one-tenth of a homer, their measure shall be according to the homer. The shekel shall be 20 uh, geras, 20 shekels, 25 shekels, 15 shekels shall be your mina. Now listen, it wasn't uncommon in that day for merchants to come along and use, um, to, to use differing weights where they could you know, sell less for more money and where they could buy more for less money. So they had different weights. This weight they would use for selling their goods and they would be able to sell less and get more money. And they'd have a different weight where they would, I'm gonna buy this, here's my weight. And they would get more product for what they were actually buying. So they were very dishonest in that. And God is all about honesty. Do you understand that's the one thing God can't do is lie? God's a God of truth. He upholds his word and he wants us to do the same, to live honestly. And it's important that the followers of Jesus then conduct themselves in like fashion. It says in Proverbs 11:1, 1, dishonest scales are an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. God wants us being integral people. Do you know how much better this world would be if people were more honest, right? Just walking in honesty. And within reason, understand, right? There's only so much I can take as somebody saying, hey, Brent, you look really tired today. You know, I've had that happen a number of times. You look really tired. I'm like, I felt 100% until you said anything. Thanks for sharing that with me. Thanks for your honesty. I'm like, no, feel great, but uh, not anymore, apparently. I'm not doing so good at 
by the way I look to you, that is. So, um, you know, honesty within reason, of course, practicing some wisdom and discernment in that. But it'd be better placed, certainly, if we were just more integral. Being people of integrity. That's what God wants us to be. People of integrity as Christians, believers, people of the world should be willing to trust us and go, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, well, here you go. I mean, I, I can trust you for this responsibility or in this area. That, that should never be a problem among Christians. That should be a way that we can be a, a witness to the world to show them that we are wanting to uphold this integrity and truth and honor the Lord in our conduct. Well, verses 13 to 17, moving along, verses 13 to 17 just detail more laws and directions for the prince in relation to offerings he's gonna bring. So again, he's offering sacrifices. This isn't the Messiah. This is another leader who's offering sacrifices up. Verses 18 to 25 now, they describe the feasts that are gonna be kept during the millennium, specifically the Passover. And the Passover becomes really that kind of pinnacle, that that high day for uh, the Jews because this is the day that they celebrate how they were delivered out of Egypt, delivered from bondage to slavery, how they were set free. This is their freedom and it was all accomplished through the Lord God. So Passover became very instrumental. Without that, there's nothing really to celebrate, right? That's kind of like their salvation. And without that, there's no reason to celebrate. But because of Passover, well, now they continually have a reason to rejoice. You know, the same goes for us, doesn't it? Because of what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross, how he paid the price and the penalty to forgive us of our sin, to to redeem us from the, the clutches of the enemy and from death and sin, and he delivered us out of that into right relationship and fellowship with him, we have reason to rejoice today. We're saved. It doesn't matter what we might go through and what we might endure, and I don't want to minimize any kind of hurt or pain we might be going through because those are real, and we need to support one another in that. But here's the fact is that regardless of what I face, I know what Jesus has already done for me, and I know what he has planned for me. And that gives me reason to rejoice. We're saved. We've been delivered from sin and death. Now again, now if you haven't been with us lately, it seems weird that we'd be having animal sacrifices during the millennial reign of Christ as are being mentioned as we talk about the Passover and the different offerings that are bring in celebrating that feast. And we think in the millennium, why is there sacrifices? Because didn't Jesus come and bring an end to sacrifices as Hebrews says? Yes, yes he did. And he's present with us in the millennium, yes. But these sacrifices are not for atonement. They don't provide anything for us, but more so they become a memorial. They become a way that we get to, again, remind ourselves and picture what Jesus has done for us. Remember, there's gonna be people coming into the millennium that are either new converts. They put their faith in Jesus through through the tribulation. And now these things become just a real picture to them of the work that Jesus did to save them and deliver them. The sacrifice he made, that sin is costly, sin is bloody, and these sacrifices will remind them and they become a memorial to say, thank you, Jesus, for what you've done, just like we do in communion. We know that these things don't hold any power. It's grape juice. It's matzo bread. These things don't hold any power, but they become reminders of the blood that Jesus shed of his body broken for us on the cross, and they become a remembrance, a, a tool that we used to say, Lord, I'm remembering what you've done. This is, this is to simply memorialize your, your death and your salvation 
for us. That's what those sacrifices become. Well, let's move on to chapter 46. Actually, the end of verse 45, verse 25, we've just been talking about Passover, the feast will be celebrated, but in verse 25, another feast is mentioned, not by name, but based on the dates given there, the seventh month and the 15th day of the month, that's speaking of the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah chapter 14 also speaks about this Feast of Tabernacles that is gonna be celebrated during the millennium and the significance and the importance of people coming up to Jerusalem to celebrate that. And that becomes a great memorial and a celebration too because the Jews celebrated Feast of Tabernacles or Feast of Booths to commemorate how God delivered them through the wilderness, how he he. he comforted them, provided for them. Methodists is that, that um, pillar of cloud by day to guide them and, and that fire by night to lead them and provide warmth for them. And so what they do at the Feast of Tabernacles, they camp out under the stars. They build little, little lean-to shelters, temporary shelters where they camp out under. Still today, if you go to Jerusalem or Israel during the Feast of Tabernacles, you'll see people camping on the streets. This becomes a, a, a super fun holiday for all the kids. Like they have a camp out, you know? And that's kind of what we will be seeing happening as we observe Feast of Tabernacles during the millennium. For us, not about being taken care of through the wilderness as Israel was, but for us saying, thank you, Lord, how you led us and took us through as we were pilgrims in this world. And you've led us through to where we are now enjoying eternity with you. And so again, commemorating the work that the Lord has done. Chapter 46, we move on here. Verse one, to look at just kind of this sort of worship protocol that's being given. It says in verse one, thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut the six, work, uh, shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath, it shall be opened. And on the day of the new moon, it shall be opened. The prince shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway from the outside and stand by the gatepost. The priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings. He shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go out, but the gate shall not be shut until evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the entrance to this gateway before the Lord on the Sabbath and the new moons. So if you would remember from last week, and I think it was last week where we had a picture up of that new temple that's gonna be built. Well, there were different gates. There was the outer gate and there was the eastern gate, the, the northern gate, the southern gate that led into the outer courtyard. Remember in chapter 44, it tells us the eastern gate was blocked off and shut permanently. Why? Because that was where the glory of the Lord came and filled the temple once more. So as the glory of the Lord came in through the eastern gate, just as it went out that way, comes back in. Now that eastern gate is sealed in a sense to say, that glory is never departing again. God is with us here and he's staying. So the eastern gate on the outside of the city walls is blocked, but now we're talking about this inner gate that leads into the inner courtyard of the temple. And that now says that's gonna be blocked during the six working days, but on the Sabbath, it's gonna be open. That's where people will come in. The rest of the days, there's still access, but it's gonna be through the northern and, and southern gates that'll be used there. Verses four to 15 are gonna cover various types of offerings and, and further worship protocol at the temple, but we'll move down to verse 16 of chapter 48, or sorry, verse, chapter 46, verse 16. Everybody with me? I, I don't even know if I'm with myself, but I think I'm there. Uh, chapter 46, verse 16, thus says the Lord God, 
If the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. But if he gives a gift of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty, after which it shall return to the prince. But his inheritance shall belong to his sons. It shall become theirs. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. Now, inheritance was very important for the Israelite. And it's gonna continue to be that way during this time. And the various laws that were associated with returning property in the 50th year, which is the year Jubilee, is gonna be upheld during the millennium. You see, if somebody had to sell a portion of land due to a debt, or somebody was sold into slavery due to a debt, well, in that 50th year, all land and saves were to be returned back, given their freedom, returned back to original owners in that year Jubilee. And that's gonna be the case even here during the millennium. But there's instruction given to the prince that he's not to go and take somebody's property that's not of their family. They're not to evict them out of there, right? And again, there's not to be that abuse of power by the leaders as had been seen in Israel's history. Case in point was with Ahab and Jezebel. When Ahab, he sees his neighbor's vineyard, Naboth's vineyard, he's like, oh man, that's some some primo real estate there. He goes to Naboth, Naboth, I want your land. And Naboth's like, well, dude, you can't, that's my land. You can't have that. And Ahab goes away sad. He's, he's just, you know, he's just down in the dumps. He's all upset. He's in his home kind of sulking and Jezebel, his wife comes in. She's like, what's the matter? The Naboth's not giving me his land. And Jezebel's like, well, we'll see about that, right? And she steps in and takes action. And through this power play and abuse of power, they take Naboth's land. And that doesn't go over well in the Lord's eyes. So the Lord brought this judgment upon them and dealt with them. But that's not to be the case in this time. Everything is to be done rightly again and, and with justice and, and righteousness. But the lesson for us, I think, I mean, how we need to learn to be content because how often we can look at what others have and think, oh, if only I had that, then I'd really be happy. And so often we're looking for other things to make us happy rather than just learning the principle of contentment, being content with what we have. Paul had to address that even among the church because there, there, were, there were those that were using, you know, kind of their position or religion as an opportunity for gain. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 6, verse five to eight. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. So learning to be content. Now, verses 19 to 24 this section details the areas around the temple where the priests were able to boil and bake different offerings that came in. Remember, portions of the sacrifices, um, certain portions of those sacrifices were given to the priests to be their, their food, their sustenance, to provide for them. And so the Lord establishes these little priestly kitchens all around the temple where they can go and take these offerings, boil them, bake them, whatever they need to do to, to cook them up and to have their meal. I think that's pretty awesome. Chapter 47, chapter 47, 
verse one. We're gonna read a few verses here and I love this section that we look at here. It says in verse one, then he brought me back to the door of the temple and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east for the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east and there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Verse five, again, he measured 1,000 and it was a river that I could not cross for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. He said to me in verse six, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there for they will be healed and everything will live wherever the river goes. Verse 10, it shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi to En Eglam. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Oh man, I'll tell you. I love that section of scripture. I love the picture that it paints for us. Now, first of all, understand that water is a real necessity in the Middle East, right? It's, it's a valued commodity. For us, we're just like, water, no big deal. We turn on our taps, we got some of the freshest water around and we drink it up, no big deal. But in the Middle East, I mean, water was a necessity. And cities would often build their, their towns around waterways. But what's interesting is in Jerusalem, there's no natural water source. There's no river flowing through Jerusalem. That was very uncommon in that day. So we see here in this passage that there will be a source of water that's flowing from the temple. This is a supernatural water source or it's a spring that's been opened up under the ground. But nevertheless, there's water flowing where there's no water flowing right today. And you know, that's exactly what Jesus desires to do in each and every one of us. He tells us in John 7, verse 37 to 39, that on that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Do you see that? Jesus called out and said, hey, is anyone thirsty? Does anyone want to have living water? Well, come unto me because I'm gonna supply living water. I'm gonna supply a source that you don't have in the natural. That may not be there right now, but I'm gonna provide something that's gonna flow 
out from your heart and how we need the Holy Spirit flowing in our lives to do for us what is not available in the natural. We, we can just run ourselves ragged thinking that I gotta live this life, I've gotta serve the Lord and I gotta do all these things in my, in my own effort, my own strength, my own ability. When the Lord says, no, that's not how you're to do it. I'm gonna supply the Holy Spirit to you that's gonna enable you and empower you, equip you to carry out what I have for you. We need a supernatural work that brings life and healing and helps us overcome our flesh. Now, just as Ezekiel is called to step into this water, and at first it just goes up to his ankles, right? It's like, okay, that's cool. And the man that's with him and kind of being that tour guide, he says, let's go a little bit further. He steps in, now goes up to his knees, a little further up to his waist. Eventually it's like, over his head, it becomes something that he can only swim in. He's submerged in this and he can't even cross it. In that same picture, there are people today, I believe, that are content with just kind of getting their toes wet or just getting up to their knees where it's like, okay, I'll try this out a little bit, but I still want control. I still want to kind of be the one that's, that's leading things. How do we have more of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives? By simply surrendering ourselves to where we say, Lord, I, I don't want to be the one that's leading, that's governing things in my life. I don't want the flesh to be what's winning out. I want the Holy Spirit to be winning out, ruling, leading. And for that to happen, we need to be yielding, simply yielding to the Holy Spirit. It's not through jumping through the right hoops, going through certain rituals. It's simply by asking and yielding, surrendering, saying, more of you, God. Pour your spirit into me, but not just pour your spirit into me, but overflow in me and out of me and through me. And this water, it tells us in verse eight that it flows from the temple, the source, and it flows through the valley in the east and all the way into the Dead Sea. And all along the way, trees are growing along its riverbanks, trees that produce fruit and leaves that were used for medicine, healing it, as it says in verse 12. That's an amazing phenomena that's taking place. Because understand, there around the Dead Sea, it's, it's not called the Dead Sea for just, you know, unusual. It's called the Dead Sea because it's dead around there. It's the lowest place on earth, the lowest point. And there's nothing that lives or grows in the Dead Sea. There's no wildlife. There's no vegetation. It's dead. But yet this water is gonna flow into it and it's gonna bring healing to it. There's gonna be a multitude of fish. Fishermen, we read there in, in verse 10, are gonna be casting their nets and they're gonna be bringing in a huge haul of fish. And I'll be there on the, on the bank saying, ah, I remember a day when I used to come and float in this thing. Couldn't sink, it's amazing, nothing grew in it. I'll look at it now, how about that? I'd be like, ah, oh, just shut up with your stories. We're just fishing, you know? And so, but that's gonna be exciting to see this thing come alive. Now, the Dead Sea is quite an interesting place. Why is it so lifeless today? It's got the same waters that flow into it, that flow out of the Sea of Galilee where there's great life and abundance of vegetation and, and, and wildlife. But though there's the same waters flowing out of the Sea of Galilee that flow into the Dead Sea, there's no outflow of the Dead Sea. 
It becomes dry, dead, salty. The same is true for us. If there's no outflow happening in our lives, we become a little dry, a little salty. The Holy Spirit doesn't want to just fill you. He wants to overflow you and pour out of you. This is where life really gets exciting. This is where life becomes real and meaningful in a sense. And it's not just life setting in for us, but life being imparted to others as well. Let's, let's be sure that we're not just taking in, but rather being conduits where the Holy Spirit is continuing on his work in us and through us because it's that which brings life and health and fruitfulness. I want this church to be a fruitful church and I believe that becomes more the case as we're people walking in, living by the Holy Spirit, surrendered all the more and, and having the Holy Spirit just overflowing in us, leading us on to what the Lord has for us. That's what I desire. That's what I, I, I ask that we just continue to be praying together for, for the Lord just to use us and to lead us into what he has for us, that, that there would be great life and fruit and health here. Zechariah spoke of that same thing taking place. Zechariah 14, and that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea and half of them toward the Western Sea. In both summer and winter, it shall occur. Living waters shall flow. Oh man, I can't wait to see that. Now, some have confused that event with what we read in Revelation 22, because in Revelation 22, it also speaks about a, a river of life and the tree there that's um, uh, a tree of life and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. But that's not what we're reading about here in Ezekiel 47 or Zechariah 14, because Revelation 22, guess what's going on there. It's a new heaven and new earth. Ezekiel 47 is happening here on this earth, a transformed earth, but it's this earth. And so we're going to see a change take place there on this earth. But then after the millennium, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And then Revelation continues on to say how in that place, there will be also another river of water of life and a tree that provides leaves for the healing of the nations. Pretty awesome. Well, Verses 13 to 23, these speak of various boundaries of the land that will be divided among the tribes. Chapter 48, we move into that and it continues to give us sort of the, the allotment of land for the different tribes. Here's what J.E. Smith said. He said, the portions assigned to each tribe apparently were equal. These portions of approximately 20 miles in width stretched from the Mediterranean Sea to the Jordan River. The tribes apportioned territory north of the sacred district were Dan, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Reuben, and Judah. The sacred district, which was described in chapter 45, again is described here in verses 8 to 22 of chapter 48. And then south of that district of land given to the Lord, you've got... Um, you know, the five tribes who had their inheritance there, Benjamin, uh, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, and Gad. Now, it's interesting because the significance of this arrangement is that in the new Israel, the worship of God would be central. And so here we see kind of the breakdown there in Israel of the, the 12 tribes. And again, that district that's given to the Lord is kind of there central. And there's again, uh, up top there, just a um, blowing up picture of that where the sanctuary is gonna be, the city as well in the bottom. Now, let's 
Jump down to verse 30. It says, these are the exits of the city. On the north side, measuring 4,500 cubits, the gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel. The three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, and one gate for Levi. On the east side, 4,500 cubits. Three gates, one gate for Joseph, one for Benjamin, one for Dan. The south side, uh, they had gates for Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, verse 34. The west side, uh, gates for Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And verse 35, all the way around, shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of the city from that day shall be, everybody say it together, the Lord is there. Woo! What a great way to end our study in Ezekiel, to end our study going through God's word, every book here at, at, at Riverside, to hear those words, the Lord is there. Now think about the comfort that that would have brought to these in captivity in Balaam, because this is where Ezekiel's at. This is where his, his fellow Jews are sitting now in exile in Babylon. And they're thinking, God's done with us. God's left us. He's out of the building. The, the temple's destroyed. Jerusalem is sacked. God is done with us. And they're thinking, what hope do we have? But you see now, God is beginning to show them and reveal to them that he has great things in store. Very specific plans in store to where every measurement is laid out. God's not just kind of saying, well, you know, we'll see what comes. He's got everything laid out now, every measurement to say, this is what I have in store for all of you when I will restore you, renew you, when I'll put my spirit in your heart, when I will regather you into the land. This is what I've got in mind. And not only will you have a land, an inheritance, a temple, but guess what? I'm going to be there. And I'm gonna be with you. This is what God is revealing to his people, giving them hope. This is that encouragement while they are sitting in exile. The name of that city that's mentioned here, Jerusalem is what's being spoken of. Jerusalem means teaching of peace. There's a prophetic element to that, to, to show that this is what God has had in mind to bring about his peace. But again, so many people turned, rebelled. They've ended up in captivity. But there's coming a day when this city is gonna be called Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. That's the only way that they're gonna experience peace is when they bring the Lord into it. When the Lord is present with them, residing with them. And how the Lord desires to reside with us. And he's made that possible. How? By coming to this world. And this season, above all, we should be remembering, reflecting on what Jesus came to accomplish. Because he came and he clothed himself in humanity. Tells in Isaiah 7, 14, that, that his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he came and he stepped into humanity so that he could be with us. And that he could provide the way for us to be with him forever and ever. This is not something that's just reserved for Israel for a future day. This is something that as believers, we can be experiencing and enjoying each and every day to know that truth that God is with us. Is he with you? Is he residing in your life? Have you brought him in to say, Jesus, I don't want you just being part of my life. I want you to be my life. Come in and dwell with me. Take over, lead be the Savior, the Lord of my life. That's what he desires to do. 
he is here with us. And so may we live with that joy of knowing that he is indeed with us, that he is here because he is. May that be the reality for each and every one of us. And may we grow in that, especially as we move towards Christmas now, remembering that he came to be God with us. Praise the Lord for that. Well, that wraps up Ezekiel. That wraps up the whole of the Bible. How about that? That's, that's maybe it's just me. I'm excited about that, but um, yeah. So another 17 years and we'll say, guess what? We've gone through the Bible a second time. I hope you'll, actually, I hope we'll be in heaven by that time. That's what I'm hoping for, but it's all good. So we're going to pray. And then we're going to dismiss. And um, again, let me just, yeah, just let's be in prayer, you know, for as we move and get ready to move into 2019. I know we're a month away, but um, boy, December's going to move quickly. And let's be in prayer just for the Lord to continue to equip us, to pour his spirit into us as we've seen here today, the importance of that. And just that we'd move on in in just fruitfulness and, and life and all that God has for us here at Riverside, okay? Lord, we thank you for our time together to come and meet with you, to be with you, to worship you. Thank you that you are here with us, Lord. God, we know that'll be a significant reality in a future day, physically, when we will see you face to face, but Lord, we know the the truth is ever so real for us today that you are with us. You provided the way by faith in you to experience life in you and with you. Not just life now, but life eternal. And so we're grateful. And Lord, we just pray that you would fill us today with your spirit. We need more of you, Lord. We don't want to live these lives our way, in our strength, through our power. Lord, we fail when we do. We want your spirit residing, dwelling, overflowing in us equipping and empowering us to continue on, Lord, living this life for you, for your praise, your glory, to be witnesses in this world. And so may you move us on personally, move us on as a church corporately to greater life and fruitfulness, Lord, in the days ahead. As we look forward to the day when we will be with you for all of eternity. So we thank you for bringing us through your word, for letting us go through every book here and We look forward to just continuing on. Continue to raise us up, teach us, train us up, Lord, in the things that you have for us. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.